A strong, sufficient and confidently trained healthcare workforce is imperative for the survival of any healthcare system, especially so in the Asia-Pacific region, which comprises a mixed bag of development from the low income to the advanced economies. For a digital-ready workforce, support and training are needed to deal with a changing world where digital technologies are becoming a daily part of life. So we need to be really forward-looking and preparing our workforce for continued change uh, and to expect change going forward in terms of how they can provide healthcare. I think in terms of the individual level, I think it's about helping them to manage digital changes and you know how do they actually have the skill to use the digital technology confidently and to be able to optimize their own work. And in terms of retaining them, of course, the work conditions, the mental health conditions, the welfare and the salary, you know, you need to match that because now it's quite a big difference between those who are, you know, in the private sector and, and also in the public sector. This is Healthcare Redefined, a podcast which explores the vital issues driving digital change and innovation in the healthcare sector in the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Elizabeth Suka a senior research manager at Economist Impact. This podcast is commissioned by Philips. In this episode, we will explore the extent to which healthcare workforce shortages are impacting the Asia-Pacific region and how we can support workers to upskill for this digital transformation. The global population is growing rapidly, societies are ageing, and our healthcare workforce is becoming more mobile within nations and between countries. In the next 15 years, the world will be short of a staggering 18 million adequately skilled healthcare workers. If this issue isn't addressed now, it could have dire consequences for us. Countries in Southeast Asia have some of the lowest densities of skilled health professionals in the world, with around 27 per 10,000 population across the region. To reach effective coverage by 2030, Southeast Asia is estimated to need a staggering 4.7 million more health workers. Progress has been made over the last 20 years, but few countries in the region have reached the World Health Organization threshold of 44 skilled health workers per 10,000 population. Australia is one of the lucky countries in the region, but it still faces challenges. I asked Kylie Woolcock what are the main drivers behind these shortages and unequal distribution. She is the acting chief executive of the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association, which represents public and not-for-profit hospitals and healthcare providers. I think in Australia, and when we look at some of those comparative figures, Australia does pretty well in terms of workforce numbers per population. Um, And we've always considered the distribution that's a bigger problem in in Australia. Um, And it does vary by healthcare professionals, but I think generally across the board, that's a fairly consistent observation. Uh, I think as we move forward, though, it's not going to be enough just to be thinking about numbers and distribution, and it's really needs to be driven by models of care. And if we're not thinking in that context, we're really not going to leverage some of the opportunities that come both from using our workforce differently um, and potentially new roles of workforce, but also the opportunities that come from technology. If that is the view from Australia, what about Singapore, another advanced economy in the Asia-Pacific region that is also facing an ageing population? Kwang Chek Tan is the CEO of the Agency for Integrated Care in Singapore, 
a body that helps coordinate the delivery of aged care services in the community. He seems to agree that we should not focus on numbers alone. For Singapore, we do face, I think, the key challenges of an aging population. At the same time, in terms of our low uh, fertility rate. So we envisage that by the time we reach 2030, one in four of us in Singapore will be aged 65 and above. I think not just unique for Singapore, but many uh, developed societies or countries around the world. And that coupled with the fact that the workforce is shrinking does mean that in terms of uh, the proportion of uh, the workforce available to support a healthcare system is going to be a key challenge for us going forward. And uh, as rightly mentioned, I think in terms of us looking at the workforce, this is not just about numbers. I think Kylie is correct. I think it's also in terms of uh, looking at uh, ways that we can optimize the manpower and the healthcare workforce that we have in terms of leveraging on technology as well as digitalization to support the delivery of care. That's one. Two is really in terms of uh, also looking at where the healthcare workers can best impact on the health outcome of the population. And that's where in Singapore, we're also not just focusing on the healthcare workforce within the hospitals, but really looking at them out in the community, being able to help care for and also keep our Singaporeans healthy as far and as long as possible. And so I think with different approaches, we can really look at optimizing the workforce to deliver the health outcomes that we want. These two advanced countries are thinking about optimizing the limited resources they have. But what about Malaysia? It's a middle-income country with around 15 physicians per 10,000 people, compared with Australia's 38 and Singapore's 23. I asked Fabian Bigar, who has worked as an undersecretary in the Ministry of Health, what is driving some of these shortages and the wider issues. He is now the CEO of My Digital, a government initiative to transform Malaysia into a regional pioneer in the digital economy. Okay, in Malaysia, I think, of course, uh, like what Kylie has mentioned, the numbers, of course, you know, it's a major concern. But what I think is more important is the distribution. Uh, you look at uh, distribution in, in terms of regional disparities, you know, in public uh, migration to private sector. I think these are the two key things. Some of the drivers, of course, they are mainly economic, uh, for economic reasons. Uh, there's more progress in the, in the West Coast, so of course, um, a lot of the facilities in the West Coast and, and uh, the distribution of the uh, manpower in the West Coast. But again, there are also local issues, like for example, in the state where I come from, Sarawak, you know, uh, there are actually, you know, uh, some issues related to the labour laws in the state, which is a bit uh, restrictive. Of course, in the public sector, it's not a problem for medical doctors to practice there. But if you're in the private sector, it becomes unattractive because you need permits to practice in these areas. Thank you, Fabian, for that. Kylie, what do you expect governments to do to help turn this ship around? What do you think is the most important thing they could do to deal with the shortages? Addressing workforce issues is complex because it is, uh, you know, there's a long lag between some interventions and, and the outcomes of actually improving the workforce. I think we need to be thinking in terms of what we can do now to make roles more attractive. So it's not just about uh, rural versus metropolitan, it's about the different sectors. So in Australia, we can end up with competition between health, disability and aged care because they're run through different um, parts of our governments, as well as competition between within health, between hospital and primary health care. Uh, I think we're, you know, following COVID, we're 
one of the things that we really can do immediately is address some of the safety and um, security issues and the well-being of our workforce, ensuring that the people are having their skills utilised most effectively so that they enjoy their work. And I think, you know, one of the examples of that might be that we're losing some of our senior workforce, which means we also lose those people who can supervise and train our younger workforce. And if we recognise that that as a role, that they may not want to have a clinical-facing role or a patient-facing role, they may still be happy to come into the workplace and, and provide that supervision and support. And as a workplace, what we need to be ensuring is that we're not then taking them, you know, when things get a bit tough and workforce is tight, which is obviously what it's like at the moment, is that we're not then diverting them into a, a clinical and placing role because then we will lose them altogether. Um, and then we need to be thinking about sort of some, um, you know, nearer and, and further term type interventions about how do we actually clinically design roles uh, that are person-centred but also respect the well-being of our workforce and use them to the top of their scope so that they have a fulfilling role. It's important to provide fulfilling roles and for healthcare systems to enable compassionate employers because that's how you keep people. Kwang Chek, you work in aged care healthcare services. What are the specific challenges there for healthcare professionals? Can you share any examples of good initiatives to help retain staff in those particular services? We've been working really hard in terms of developing and retaining the workforce. Uh, one is just to make sure at the basic level in terms of key uh, uh, basic consideration of salary competitiveness, right? making sure we get our share, our fair share of the workforce, making sure that they are fairly compensated and they, they feel there's work, uh, worthwhile in a way to stay in healthcare and community care is what we've been doing. So the ministry has injected over $45 million over the next few years to really benefit the more than 14,000 staff. So we are reviewing the job roles and creating career pathways through job redesign to help them to actually be able to not just perform at the top of the license, but be able to achieve the purpose and an impact that they would through their jobs and their roles. And this is something that we are working very hard on within the community care sector in Singapore, looking at the care support roles, looking at how we can also bring in different uh, uh, workforce segments to be able to augment the current workforce, creating a pathway that's attractive for them to stay, to join and stay with us for the longer term. Maybe as the last part, we, we are also focusing quite a bit in terms of developing their capability as well as helping them to upskill, which we feel is important in the longer term for them to feel that they are able to contribute well and also able to stay on in their journey with us in community care sector. So we have rolled out uh, initiatives in terms of training and development through our learning institute to be able to ramp up capacity in training, but also relevant causes to help them upskill, be able to perform top of the license. Thank you for that. Fabian, are you in agreement with Quan Chek's points? What are the other issues that need to be highlighted around the workforce? Yeah, I of course, uh, what Quan Chek mentioned is quite relevant. But uh, in Malaysia, I think it goes beyond just uh, the, the workforce. But I think it's the investment in the public healthcare system. Uh, I think the minister has announced and in Parliament that they're looking into you know coming up with a white paper on looking at public healthcare reforms because. You want to look into ensuring that you can retain the staff, not only uh, just investment of all, but when you look at uh, the, the uh, you know manpower issues, you want to re- be able to re- retain the medical staff in the uh, private sector to ensure there's balance between both public and private. You know, and in terms of uh, retaining them, of course, the work conditions, the mental health uh, conditions, 
the welfare and of course the salary you know uh, you need to match that because now it's quite a big difference between those who are you know in the private sector and and also in the public sector so these are the things that we need to look at and and and, and you know do an analysis on on those and come up with proper re- recommendations healthcare redefined is a podcast series commissioned by philips and now here is a word from our sponsor Since 2016, Philips has supported original research to help determine the readiness of countries to address global health challenges and build efficient and effective health systems. The Future Health Index focuses on the crucial role digital tools and connected care technology can play in delivering more affordable, integrated and sustainable healthcare. With almost 3,000 healthcare leaders surveyed across 15 countries, the 2022 Future Health Index focuses on how data and advanced analytics are giving healthcare providers new tools which enhance their ability to deliver care to all sectors of their communities, both in and out of traditional hospital settings. Click the link in the show notes to access the report. While healthcare systems face worker shortages who have labored under the burden of COVID-19, at the same time an increased adoption of digital technologies has the potential to relieve this strain by increasing efficiency and improving outcomes. It could also possibly reduce reliance on unskilled healthcare providers and improve access to services in remote areas. Some studies are finding that after the COVID-19 pandemic, consumers prefer services conducted remotely or by video calls. This, combined with crushing demands on healthcare workers across the region, could encourage the adoption of digital technologies by healthcare professionals. However, digital skills is a work in progress amongst health workers. Some have estimated that between 30 and 70% of health workers report not to have all the skills they need to use digital technologies and fully engage with digital information. We need to address how we support healthcare professionals to obtain the digital skills needed. I asked Kylie, what is the role of digitalization in providing solutions to these issues? I think that we can use digitalization in, in so many ways. I think you know we're not even um, starting to even see the potential that we can have in terms of how we use technology to support the health and well-being of people and communities, uh, and which is why we need to sort of think about our broad uh, our workforce in uh, not in terms of um, professions in silos, but really think broadly. And, you know, a lot of these things will be supported by a workforce that's not a clinical workforce. It will be people who, you know, can support literacy and digital literacy. Uh, I, I think we need to really um, utilise those uh, digital capabilities to to utilise dra- data and data can drive the way care um, is designed and um, delivered. Um, in a way that we just haven't been able to do before. Uh, so I think it's a lot more than just the probably the, uh, the workforce. It really will require, um, you know, a whole of health and whole of social system uh, to, to drive the way that we um, provide care into the future in a way that is sustainable but actually achieves you know, better health outcomes for people in their communities. Kylie, in terms of the digital skills that are going to be important for healthcare professionals, What areas do you think they're going to be? Is it telehealth, robotics or AI-assisted diagnosis? 
I, I think we have to be careful probably not to lump too much onto health professionals who already have an incredible uh, uh, knowledge and skill base that we need to make sure we don't lose. And so it, sometimes it may be about having an, another workforce that sits around them and supports them to use these technologies. I think our, our clinical workforce, though, do, does need to be very clear about uh, how technology is used in the way they provide care because they are the ones that are going to be able to determine where the risk lies in, in a clinical care pathway. They're going to be able to identify, um, you know, whether the governance is appropriately and that technologies are being managed appropriately, particularly as we move into um, models of care that might you know, use artificial intelligence. Uh, and, and they need to be across how workflow changes with that. So I think that there's quite a, di a diverse range of skills that are needed to wrap around our health system. Um, and some of them will need to sit within our clinical workforce, but I think there are a lot of potential for other roles that can support our clinical workforce to do what they do best. I like this idea of wrapping around and supporting the healthcare professional workforce. Kwong Chek, your organisation is involved with many community healthcare workers. What sort of digital skills would you like to see them have? And what gaps are there at the moment? Yeah, well, clearly, uh, digitalization, I think, is a key enabler and focus for us, I think, across uh, different countries. But in Singapore, we are focusing our effort in terms of developing not just digital literacy, but really being able to leverage on technology to improve the quality of care, uh, productivity, efficiency, and also to support, I think, transformation of the models of care going forward. So at the organizational level, I think it's important to support our partners and our service provider, firstly, to recognize the potential of digitalization and how they can incorporate that as part of their overall business strategy uh, in delivering the healthcare uh, services uh, and the social care services. And that requires, I think, not just understanding about the digital technology, but also how they can incorporate that into their processes and care models, how they can optimize that going forward. Now, we also see that in terms of the need to focus on the digital uh, skills and upgrading at the team level or the group level of professionals. So as pointed out, I think the clinical staff is one group that we need to look at how best to help them uh, leverage on technology. But also increasingly, I think it is important to look at the non-clinical group that supports, I think, the clinical services, uh, service delivery, whether it's in terms of the social care groups, whether it's in terms of volunteers as well. Uh, you know, how do we also also help to leverage technology and help them to adopt that in terms of their daily work and processes and also help them to do better. Then lastly, I think in terms of the individual level, I think it's about helping them to manage uh, digital uh, uh, changes and you know, how do they actually have the skill to use the digital technology confidently and to be able to optimize their own work and to use it in their daily work life so that we can really sort of uh, uh, leverage fully on the potential of technology. So at different levels, we are supporting in terms of training development programs to help organisations, teams and individuals to really help to drive this strongly going forward. Thank you for that. Fabian, My Digital is a cross-industry national programme that the Malaysian government has introduced. Is it addressing how to upskill the healthcare workforce digitally? Is that one of the early initiatives that you're thinking about? Talent is one of the key trusts under the My Digital uh, Blueprint, actually, the Malaysia Digital Economy Blueprint. 
that's the blueprint for the next 10 years until 2030. And uh, if you look at uh, the, the blueprint, it actually requires Malaysia as a whole to train our workforce, whether they are existing workforce, those already in, uh, you know, in working, and the future workforce, those who are in school. You know, you have to have programs to train them. But as uh, we did a survey to look at the, the, the gap in factors that, uh, you know, the effect in the market right now, what is the technical skills needed, you know? Um, number one is data analytics. You know, we did a survey across the industry to say, what are the vacancies that are not filled in Malaysia? Data analytics. After that, you know, digital marketing, uh, artificial intelligence, data science, and cybersecurity. These are the top five. I think number one in the health sector as well, we need to have this kind of skill sets. Thanks for that. I would like to unpack what we hope to achieve through digital upskilling of healthcare professionals. Kylie, how do you see it affecting patient outcomes? Do you think it will have a huge benefit? Or will it be about creating efficient healthcare systems? How do you see it playing out? I think it can be, it can be both if it's done well. Uh, so I think, though, we need to be very conscious that it's a mechanism of providing care and it needs to be embedded in clinical pathways. Uh, certainly in Australia, where we've got quite you know, vast distances between communities, we wouldn't want to see virtual care models replacing the health workforce that exists in those communities. So it can't be a competitive um, implementation. It really needs to be something that's integrated and, and embedded and, and supports so that we're not losing our, our workforce that's present because not all care can be provided virtually. So you're sort of advocating a hybrid model that may become the norm over time, perhaps? Absolutely. I think people expect that, and we're certainly seeing that across other industries, the way uh, technology is used. People see it as convenient, and, and but not all healthcare can be provided remotely. So we do need to be cognizant that if we are replacing or substituting a particular type of care uh, particularly in our remote communities, that it's it's being done in a way that still supports care more broadly, um, that supports sorry the healthcare needs more broadly of that community, um, and it's not not utilised to to um, to replace the people. Thanks for that, Kwong Chek. What's your position on this from Singapore? Will this digital upskill help improve the efficiency of healthcare systems or is it more about patient outcomes or a bit of both? But, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the next uh, area, which is beyond just productivity and efficiency, it does have, uh, in, in our view, huge potential. And I think that is also, in a way, exemplified through our experience during COVID-19 to be able to help to improve the quality of care or delivery of care to different groups. So unlike Australia, we, we don't have uh, as much of a challenges of uh, geographical distances. But uh, even then, I think during COVID-19, where there are challenges in terms of uh, uh, reaching out, being able to come in physical contact, right, uh, you know, with different groups, I think telehealth, teleconsultation have come forth to be a, a key way where we can still deliver the care by ensuring that the care outcomes or the clinical outcomes are still what we are looking for. And so that uh, improvement of uh, quality of care is still quite critical. But beyond that, if I can, technology in our view also has a key role to play to drive care integration. 
and new care models. Uh, but I was nodding as well to Kylie's point in terms of, you know, also balancing the approach because at the end, while we leverage fully on technology and adopt the high-tech approach, I think our sort of sector as well as uh, the care models that we have will still require the high-touch approach, particularly in groups, I think, that requires closer care and more sort of clinical, uh, closer clinical supervision. That's why I think the blend of high-tech, high-touch will still be quite critical for us in our sector going forward. And out of the digital technologies and tools out there, Kwong Chek, what do you think will have the most resonance for healthcare professionals at the moment? A couple of areas, maybe just to highlight. One is uh, technology that enables them to be able to assess data and previous records, uh, uh, health records, as well as uh, care plans of uh, individual clients or patients that they see has been actually important for them. That's one part of it. Secondly, tools to enable them to assess care needs and to be able to you know, get uh, sort of uh, advice uh, in terms of care planning uh, going ahead because we are really looking at both social and health areas that have been integrated to provide the care out to the individual will also be it's also becoming uh, pretty uh, important maybe last part in terms of virtual or teleconsultation i think has been quite widely adopted will increasingly be so as well going forward in singapore I think in Australia, we're certainly seeing greater uptake of more innovative models in our hospital system. I think because of the way that they're structured, they have this potential to actually design a model of care that sees a patient through. Uh, We've seen that in some of the remote patient monitoring um, through uh, COVID. I think our challenge in our primary healthcare system is that we've got a large number of small businesses who are having to adopt models themselves and, and the the potential to take up some of these innovations is more challenged, but we're certainly seeing uh, an increase in focus around, you know, telehealth and and how those remote consultations uh, can be used. But I do think some of the data analytics that can be done to to drive and to help providers understand their community and understand the needs, but then to also use uh, the data to inform conversations between patients and clinicians to help them make these informed decisions together, uh, I think the potential is is enormous. Uh, but equally also for patients themselves to carry their own information about their health and health care and, and to be able to um, you know, drive their own well-being as well. Thank you for that. I'd like to shift the conversation to look at the role of education providers and how they're going to deal with this challenge of all these technologies and digital transformation. Fabian, hopefully you can start us off. What role do you see education providers having in ensuring digital tools, data analytics and AI are prominent, say in the undergraduate and postgraduate courses for healthcare professionals? Okay, in Malaysia, I've seen actually... Uh, one of the medical universities actually have already introduced courses, you know, such as uh, data analytics in healthcare and all that in undergraduate and also graduate studies. Uh, It's already happening. But of course, I do want to see more, Uh, not just the formal, you know, uh, degree courses, but also micro, you know, micro courses that you can, you know, enroll in, whether it's online or, or, you know, in the structured uh, format. Because, in other sectors other than healthcare, this is already happening in Malaysia. There's a lot of courses that you know people can enroll into up, you know, to to upskill themselves uh, in 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 general. Uh, but specifically for healthcare, I would like to see more of those courses available, you know, outside of the 
university or college system? I think there's strong awareness that there is a need for this and I think the way that our our, our education is structured is still relatively profession siloed, uh, whereas there, uh, sorry for our undergraduate courses, there's a lot of postgraduate courses happening around digital transformation to support the workforce. Um, the, the potential, though, is to embed it within programs and that will increasingly happen as, as courses are, are rolled out. The design of education and training will be critical in our planning for a digital workforce of the future across career lifespans. Employers will also have key roles to play in developing and supporting digital competencies. Healthcare professionals are highly regulated. I'm a pharmacist, so I know, as I have to do my revalidation and CPD each year. What role should healthcare regulators play around this to help boost digital skills? Kylie, what are your thoughts? Uh, it's the age-old question, isn't it? The stick or the carrot? I think with digital health, there will certainly be the carrot um, approach. People will want to embrace these things if we give them the environment to do that. Uh, the workforce is so uh, exhausted at the moment, I think, with any kind of reform. Uh, it's going to be difficult because we don't have enough workforce as it is and then to relieve them to take the time to uh, understand the opportunities that they are and contribute to how they are embedded in models of care, you know, the, the system is going to be challenged. But I think the workforce, um, you know, the potential to see the opportunities um, will certainly provide uh, enough incentive for a workforce to come on board. I don't know that we need to mandate it. I, I do, uh, in my view, foresee the role of regulators or even agency like uh, AIC that I'm in, uh, which supports the development of the raw uh, workforce to not just, I think, introduce requirements uh, or stipulation uh, for compulsory uh, professional upgrading, but helping to articulate uh, quite clearly in terms of competencies that we feel will support the professional uh, areas and the development of the healthcare groups and other workforce groups as well. And also then defining the competencies and the training roadmap and programs that they can look forward to. In essence, helping them to understand how the digital areas and skills can be central to how they deliver uh, their care as part of the professional uh, areas, but also how they can contribute to their development along the uh, professional pathway. Digital skills are going to be important for healthcare professionals, but how will digital technology and data be harnessed to empower them? Clearly, I think digital technology and data are key areas and key enablers for us to both empower our healthcare professionals, but also allow them really to fulfill the purpose of their work, but also really be able to practice at the top of their license. And as mentioned, I think much earlier in our discussion as well, I think both at the individual level, in the teams that they are uh, you know, working in and uh, across discipline, disciplines or at a cross-disciplinary basis, but also organizations that help to actually, uh, uh, that they are working in, really help to be able to improve quality of care out, to be able to drive productivity efficiency, but also at the end, in my view, to drive care integration and transformation. I think uh, Quan Cheng has said it very well earlier, but what, what I do see in addition to what he has mentioned is that uh, you know to mitigate some of the issues uh, in terms of shortage of workers and all that? I think you can harness digital technology because you can automate the processes and therefore you know re require less manpower to do certain things. Yes, I agree with what has been said already. I think 
So um, if I can add anything, it's that Australians and patients uh, more generally, they want to see digital technology uh, embedded in the way care is provided. We need to be thinking, though, not in terms of it just substituting how we provide care currently, but really looking at how we use it to redefine, um, you know, in ways that may previously have been inconceivable. Uh, So we need to be really forward-looking and preparing our workforce for essentially for continued change uh, and to to expect change uh, going forward in terms of how they can provide healthcare. It seems healthcare professionals will need to be continuously open for change, but our educators and systems need to be ready to support and train them for this digital transformation. They are a vital part of the healthcare ecosystem and investment in them is crucial. That is it for this episode of Healthcare Redefined. Thanks again to our sponsor, Philips, and our guests, Fabian Bigar, Kylie Woolcock, and Kwong Chek Tan. Next time, we'll be exploring the role of hospitals in the future. If you like what you have heard, please follow the podcast series on your favourite podcast apps or visit the Healthcare Redefined website where you can find articles and videos on the digital transformation of healthcare in the Asia-Pacific region. You can find relevant links in the show notes.